the calm before the storm. March 1st, weigh-in day at the NFL Scouting Combine. We are in the eye of the hurricane. Thursday, 4 o'clock, NFL free agency opens just as the NFL Scouting Combine is getting underway. All we can do is wait. Hurry up, get player profiler ready, get those rookie pages loaded, and wait. Hurry up and wait. It's all we do now, just biding our time. In 24 hours, things are going to be rocking with Roto Underworld. And I'm reading speculation that one of the more coveted free agent running backs, Latavius Murray, perhaps the most coveted because he's still 27, Adrian Peterson, Jamal Charles, they're in their 30s, that he could end up in Minnesota. That's what I'm reading on Roto World. And that if Latavius Murray ends up in Minnesota, that would be a death blow for Jarek McKinnon's dynasty stock. Not so. I hope Latavius Murray goes to Minnesota. That'll make Jarek McKinnon all the more affordable in dynasty leagues and redraft. I'm not worried about Latavius Murray. We've talked about Latavius Murray for multiple shows over the last few weeks. He's not good. He's a replacement level talent that has one skill. He can run fast in a straight line, and he very rarely demonstrates that skill with a below average breakaway run rate on a per touch basis. He's not breaking long runs. So what good is the 4-4-3-40 time? I don't know. The Oakland Raiders had a run-blocking efficiency grade on playerprofiler.com above 100, well above average. And yet Latavius Murray posted 4.0 yards per carry, below average. Murray was a touchdown-dependent grinder who was used very little out of the backfield in the passing game, only 33 receptions last year that was outside the top 24 running backs. So what about Latavius Murray's game makes you think he's a threat to Jarek McKinnon? There's nothing that he does that Jarek McKinnon doesn't do better. Jarek McKinnon is faster. Jarek McKinnon is stronger. Jarek McKinnon is much more agile. Jarek McKinnon is a better receiver. In no phase of football is Latavius Murray better than Jarek McKinnon. Jarek McKinnon is also two and a half years younger. So tell me again why Jarek McKinnon should be threatened by the possibility that Latavius Murray signs with Minnesota. Shouldn't be. But so many fantasy gamers think that it's over for Jarek McKinnon, that he had his opportunity in 2016, and he face-planted. He revealed himself to be a below-average running back, whereas Latavius Murray revealed himself to be an RB1. All those touchdowns. We went through this exercise trading places with Jarek McKinnon and Ezekiel Elliott. What happened if Ezekiel Elliott was somehow transported to Minnesota and McKinnon to Dallas? What do you think happens in that situation? Jarek McKinnon has an outstanding fantasy season and Ezekiel Elliott struggles running behind the league's worst run-blocking offensive line. Minnesota's run-blocking offensive line was somehow, some way, even worse than Seattle's last year. And Seattle went out of its way to not pay any offensive lineman any money whatsoever and not draft any offensive lineman with early-round draft capital. What the Seattle Seahawks did to their offensive line was gross negligence. If you happen upon a Russell Wilson, a generational talent at the quarterback position. Do you expose him to injury or do you protect him? The Seattle Seahawks chose to expose him. That is gross negligence from a player personnel standpoint. If there's any team in the NFL that cannot afford underinvestment in their offensive line, it's teams like Seattle, Indianapolis, Carolina, Tennessee, Tampa Bay, the teams with the young star quarterbacks. 
you do not want to squander such good fortune. And we're going to bring on Jason Fitzgerald from Over the Cap, and I'm going to ask him about the Seattle Seahawks' lack of investment in the offensive line and if he thinks that can change, and if the Seahawks have the cap space to afford offensive linemen if they ever decide to take their heads out of their asses and protect their most valuable asset. Russell Wilson is the golden goose, and the Seattle Seahawks have essentially let wolves into the cage by choosing not to protect him. And Jarek McKinnon last year was constantly scrambling behind the line of scrimmage to somehow, some way, eke out positive yards, facing penetrating defenders on every snap. The only reason Jarek McKinnon was able to somehow manage a yards per carry of 3.4 last season was because of his exceptional agility behind the line of scrimmage. If Jarek McKinnon posts 3.4 yards per carry facing a barrage of backfield defenders, what do you think Latavius Murray would do in that same situation? Latavius Murray's juke rate year over year evaded tackles per touch, one of the lowest in the league. If there's ever a running back that we could identify who lacks wiggle, quote-unquote, it would be Latavius Murray. Latavius Murray must have runway to succeed. He must have wide running lanes in order to be productive. That's a requirement for any team that signs Latavius Murray. You sign Latavius Murray in the hopes that he can exploit wide running lanes, but he's not going to dance around defenders in the backfield. That's not in his skill set. Fortunately, it's in Jarek McKinnon's skill set. And if somehow, some way, the Minnesota Vikings rebuild their offensive line, breaking long runs and exploiting the defense when given an opportunity is also in Jarek McKinnon's range of outcomes. So I am not worried about Latavius Murray as a Jarek McKinnon dynasty owner. And I used to think that Rick Spielman was one of the best GMs in all of football. He had a great run. One of them was drafting Jarek McKinnon. And then last year, he drafted Laquan Treadwell. That was a stunner. I had to rethink my assumptions about Rick Spielman. If Rick Spielman goes out and signs Latavius Murray, an awful fit for the Minnesota Vikings, then he'll be just another one of those NFL GMs that doesn't have a plan and clearly doesn't know what he's doing. There's a lot of those kinds of GMs in the NFL. Some of them are grossly overrated. The word was out with Ryan Grigson. He's gone. But the word's not out yet on Ted Thompson. The word's not out yet on Dave Gettleman. These are below-average NFL GMs. They're giving the wrong contracts to the wrong players at the wrong positions at the wrong times. There are five NFL general managers that I believe are grossly overrated. Number one, Ted Thompson. Number two, Dave Gettleman, GM of the Panthers. Number three, Howie Roseman. Howie Roseman was getting a lot of credit for getting something for DeMarco Murray and something for Sam Bradford. But as it turns out, Sam Bradford may be a better quarterback than Carson Wentz. Now what? Jerry Reese, GM of the New York Giants, been living off that Odell Beckham Jr. draft pick for years. And John Dorsey, the general manager of the Kansas City Chiefs. Hey, they're making the playoffs. They must be making good personnel decisions. Wrong. They've been riding Alex Smith, willingly walking into quarterback purgatory for the foreseeable future. And they just overpaid Eric Berry. And we'll ask Jason Fitzpatrick what he thinks about some of these general managers. Because I think a lot of the people that are active in fantasy football, the best fantasy football minds in the industry, the most successful high-stakes fantasy gamers, I think that they could be just as successful in the role of NFL general manager. I really do. I've said this for years. 
the best fantasy footballers would be well above average NFL general managers because a lot of NFL general managers don't have a strategy and don't have sound tactics. They clearly do not have a consistent player evaluation methodology nor a roster construction blueprint that is in any way rational. They're crawling around in the dark hoping to hit on a Russell Wilson after round one. If they do, they look like geniuses. When they don't, they get fired. And the nice thing is there are now fantasy platforms like Reality Sports Online, which allow you to simulate the role of NFL general manager. Reality Sports Online allows you to draft for every offensive and defensive position, negotiate contracts, and execute trades within a salary cap structure similar to how NFL general managers must navigate the salary cap. That's why I love Reality Sports Online. It's a game changer for anyone that's interested in a more sophisticated Dynasty League platform. Reality Sports Online is the place to go. And Reality Sports Online has partnered with Roto Underworld, and we're launching a listener league in the next few weeks. So email us, rotounderworld at gmail.com explaining why you're smarter than the average NFL general manager. And the best submissions will gain free entry into this listener league. And all the prizes will be delivered by the Reality Sports Online people. We're grateful to have them as partners. And I'm grateful to have Jason Fitzpatrick on the show today because there's a lot of interesting phenomenon that go on with the front office moves of NFL franchises. We've talked on this show how many teams find themselves in a positive feedback loop. They're part of this flywheel where winning begets winning. Once they develop a reputation for winning, once the team has established competent front office competent coaching staff, a track record for playoff appearances, those teams are more likely to continue winning while the teams that constantly finish at the bottom of the standings are often doomed to stay there. Winning creates more winning. Losing creates more losing. And I want to explore this phenomenon with Jason today. We've also marveled at the fact that many NFL teams hover around the salary floor. How is this possible in such a competitive environment with so much revenue at stake for those that make the playoffs? How can teams possibly justify leaving money on the table? We'll ask Jason that question as well. We've talked about how the running back position is disposable. Running backs are one of the more replaceable assets in the NFL. We state this as if it's fact. I want Jason to verify it. And I'm also interested in the trade deadline phenomenon. Baseball and basketball are compelling around the trade deadline. We are now obsessed with the transaction even more than the action. So the baseball and basketball trade deadlines are must-see TV. We stay up late watching our Twitter timelines, hoping that Adrian Wojnarowski has news about Paul George, Jimmy Butler. Not so at the NFL trade deadline. This is what we hear at the NFL trade deadline. And I've provided reasons why I believe the NFL trade deadline is so quiet. But I want to ask Jason why there's so little activity at the NFL trade deadline. What are the mechanics behind the unwillingness of NFL teams to move players at the trade deadline? So now let's go talk to Jason Fitzgerald. Follow him on Twitter at 
Jason underscore OTC. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio Program. Jason Fitzgerald. He is the founder of Over the Cap. This is my favorite website to learn about player contracts. Which players' contracts are expiring? How many years does Player X have left on his contract? How much dead money's left on his contract? Does it make sense for this team to cut Player X? All these questions are answered on OverTheCap.com. <laughs> Jason Fitzgerald, talk to me. Ah, uh, how you doing, Matt? <laughs> we are doing well. So, did I get the gist of Over the Cap right? Is there anything about Over the Cap? It's an amazing tool to understand the financials of the player-team relationships. Is there anything else that you want to share about the over-the-cap experience, get people to that site? Every listener, Roto Underworld Radio, should be going to overthecap.com as you're listening to this to understand just how powerful this tool is. Yeah, no, I think you you pretty much covered everything. Uh, What we have is a system that basically... Um, aggregates every contract that there is in the NFL. Uh, we present it in a manner that's very easy to understand to where you can kind of put yourself in the shoes of the general manager. You can decide, um, you know, if you're looking at it from a fantasy perspective, you can look at these numbers and say, all right, you know what? This team might be uh, looking to downgrade snaps for a certain receiver just based on his contract status. You know, they, they might move him to the sidelines as things are starting to go bad because they're going to cut him the following year. So you can really get a lot of information by going on the site and really digging into the numbers. And, you know, we have fun with stuff too. Um, you know, if you're a Jets fan, um, I'm a Jets fan, so I do post a lot of Jets-related things on there. Um, so we, we do get a lot of uh, feedback from people that like the Jets team. Uh, but, you know, we just have a lot of tools on there. Anything that you could think of when it comes to NFL salaries, uh, the NFL draft, anything else, you'll find it on the site. So, for example, Jonathan Stewart looks like a cut candidate. $4,700,050 in cap savings if the Panthers cut Jonathan Stewart. Is it worth almost $5 million to keep Jonathan Stewart? That's the question the Carolina Panthers are asking themselves. And so I'll ask you, is Jonathan Stewart the most obvious cut candidate? Uh, Of the running backs who are left, yeah, I had him number three on my list of likely cuts at the running back position. Number one was Jamal Charles, and number two was Adrian Peterson. Uh, They both got the ax today. So I would expect that Stewart will go. Um, or at the very least, they'll look to bring his salary down. But it would be a bit surprising if he stayed on at, at that contract number that he has. He's hurt too often. Uh, he probably doesn't play up to that level, really never has. I know he's talented, but if you can't get on the field uh, consistently enough, it's very hard to justify that kind of salary. And this year on Over the Cap, you can see workout bonuses due and roster bonuses due. This is when you start to see players cut the day before reporting to training camp or the day before reporting to mini camp. Why does that happen? And you can see it in these workout bonuses and the workout bonus structure as it's laid out on over the cap. Now, who is the one team in the NFL? Because you're familiar with the salary caps and the salary cap space in particular for every NFL team. That's why I want to have you on. So which one could shock the world and sign a high-profile free agent completely out of nowhere, particularly a free agent wide receiver, the team no one's talking about that could be in the market for one of these high-profile wide receivers? You know, I think if you wanted to look at a shock factor team, I would look at uh, two teams. I'd look at the Detroit Lions and the Indianapolis Colts. Um, The Lions, they signed Jones last year. 
They still have Golden Tate on the team. They don't really have a true number one receiver. Tate's been there a couple of years now. They could be looking to move on uh, from him possibly in the future. I, I could see them maybe getting in the mix to help out Stafford, uh, bring more firepower to that offense now that they have a little bit more cap room. Uh, the Colts clearly, I, I think, would be looking to improve the output that they can do offensively uh, to surround Luck with even more players. Uh, they, they've done some strange moves in the past. I know they have some younger receivers there, but some of those guys really haven't panned out that well. And if they can get someone to play alongside Hilton, uh, that would really give them, I think, a different dimension to their team that they haven't had. That's interesting. Detroit, fascinating, because I like Golden Tate, but... He's not a prototypical number one wide receiver. And when Matthew Stafford had a prototypical X receiver, a size speed specimen named Calvin Johnson, that's when he was his most productive. Now, yeah, I do not want to talk as much in this show. Last show, I talked about how Rich Rebar needed to be the one to dominate the conversation, and he did, but he didn't dominate the conversation enough. I still interjected too much, and I was too long-winded with my setups. This is going to be a surgical strike with Jason Fitzgerald. We are going to go rapid fire from the beginning. Sometimes we flip over into rapid fire to complete the show when we're low on time. You know, we're starting the show on rapid fire. I'm getting out of Jason's way, and we're just going to go boom, 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 boom down a long list of questions and essentially impose on Jason, impose on his time. And the way we repay Jason for the time that he's going to spend with us is to go to overthecap.com, get familiarized, and ideally bookmark it right there with playerprofiler.com. Now, another question. We're in rapid fire already. It's already started. With the salary cap now at $169 million, theoretically, every team can target any player in free agency now. So any chance we experience a free agent bubble this year with wild spending by numerous teams like we haven't seen in recent years? I don't know. That That's kind of hard to say. When you look at the players who just got franchise tagged, uh, I think the premium free agents are almost all off the market with the exception of a couple players at cornerback. So even though we do have record-setting cap space numbers, I don't know if the talent is necessarily there uh, to back that up. So you may see the Browns, you may see the 49ers, you may see the Jaguars go crazy. We've seen, you know, we've seen the Jaguars do that pretty much every year for the last three years. But I don't know if that'll really happen this year. Uh, I, I kind of think that there might be a couple players who obviously are going to get some pretty big contracts, but I, I don't know if it's going to be as widespread as it was last year uh, with some of the deals that came down. So you think the contracts given out this year could be lower than last year? Yeah, I do. I, I don't think that there's those uh, premier kind of pass rushers that are going to be out there. Um, there's no... There's not even like a, uh, you know, a Ryan Fitzpatrick type really going out there at quarterback, at least at the moment. Um, you know, you're probably going to have Jay Cutler released. He's going to be worth less than that. Romo will be an interesting situation when he's released, but it's probably not going to be crazy kind of money even that go for those guys. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. I, I don't see it right now. You know, you get out of the combine. This is when all like the rumors start and everything else. The agents get in everyone's ears. And so you get a lot of publicity. Maybe there's going to be some buzz that comes out of it. I don't feel the buzz right now, though. You know, last year and especially the year before with the uh, Sue hitting free agency and a number of trades and everything else, you kind of felt a buzz around that free agency. Felt a little bit of a buzz last year. I, I don't feel it this year. I see what's happening. I'm sensing a buzz. Bzz. 
The buzz I'm sensing is from the free agent wide receiver class. It's a strong free agent wide receiver class. But what I'm hearing from you is it's lacking defensive players. And that's what we had in some previous years that helped to bolster the free agent class overall because I'm so myopic with my skill position focus. I'm seeing an awesome wide receiver class, which is what's the most relevant for fantasy football. And then I'm assuming that means the whole class top to bottom is strong but it's actually not so that's my flaw that's me not doing my job that's a blind spot that I have now you talked about the Jaguars spending you saw the Jaguars spending on players like Chris Ivory that they didn't need they already had between the tackles big running back in TJ Yeldon they didn't need Chris Ivory last year but they end up spending on just whoever they can get to come to Jacksonville and we see this every year these teams that hover near the salary floor not the salary cap and that is always a shocking phenomenon to me every year I can never get my head around this idea that in this hyper competitive environment given the revenue figures and the playoff revenue structure how is it possible that NFL teams could continue to hover around the salary floor like what are the mechanics behind that how does that even work how can they justify being near the salary floor well you know there's really no rule in place for that um the, the league does have a rule in place that teams have to spend a certain amount of cash, but it's over a four-year period. So from year by year, they, they don't really have to spend that kind of money. There's no salary cap limit. So teams have devised ways to kind of stay with lots and lots and lots of cap space um, and really never using it, just constantly carrying it over, carrying it over, carrying it over. So you do have a number of teams that have kind of focused on this uh, – this aspect of kind of signing short-term contracts with players. I mean, on paper, they might look big. You, you know, you, you might see these deals that are five years, $70 million, something like that. But the, the reality, what it boils down to a lot of times is they're just two-year contracts for maybe $20 million or something like that. And you see a lot of teams that focus much more on young talent, players in the draft. Those contracts are completely slotted. They're relatively low cost. And those teams are more than happy to not spend on those players. You look at a team like the Patriots. I mean, the Patriots just jettisoned two first-round draft picks uh, rather than really having to go into negotiations and pay them. And Hightower might be the third. They, they've supposedly said that they're not going to franchise tag him. So they've lost Collins. They've lost Chandler Jones. They're just basically saying, you know what, we're not going to spend on that. We've got other ways that we can win. We don't have to spend all this money to do it. And I think that's a model that you do see a lot of teams kind of following uh, the last couple of years. I just don't understand how they can justify that, knowing that some of these free agents can help them win games. Yet there's a paradox there where the big spenders in free agency every year, like the Miami Dolphins, continue to finish in last place. So spending money in free agency is not the way to win, not the way to build a dynasty like the Patriots have built. This is completely counterintuitive to me. I just can't believe that it's possible that a team like the Patriots, they won the Super Bowl, will be entering free agency top three in cap space. Is that right, Jason? I read that somewhere. Is that correct? Uh, by the time everything gets done, they'll probably end up being number six or so, but they still have a lot. I mean, you're looking at a team with about 60 million in cap room. What? They're just going to have a lot of cap space that's there. Again, if they're not keeping those players, if they're not keeping those frontline draft picks, those are the guys that make the most money. And the Patriots, you know, the Patriots go out there and they will find kind of the junk from other teams, you know, guys who are overpaid 
And that overpayment kind of makes them be released. You know, a guy like a Chris Long, for example, that's a guy who's overpaid on the Rams. Rams don't really have a choice but to release him. Now this guy wants to win. He's used to losing so much. He's willing to play for less money because he's made a pretty good uh, salary the last couple of years. New England is able to attract a player like that to the team. And they fill up their team with these guys who might not get paid the most but are going to work hard and they're going to tailor a system to them. You know, you look at uh, LeGarrette Blunt, who doesn't make much there. He left New England a couple of years ago, signed a moderate contract with Pittsburgh, didn't even last the year in Pittsburgh, goes back to New England, has a great season, um, you know, the last year, year and a half. So they're just very different than other teams. But what you said is true. Teams that really try and revamp their whole rosters in free agency in general have not been uh, very successful. So you do see teams that realize that and you know in some respects there's a time and a place for being active in free agency you kind of have to have that core of young talent that's really ready to go and then you supplement it with the more expensive players and usually if that comes together you know you usually you can get a pretty good team that's the seahawks did that with bennett for example Right. The Seahawks would be a team that had that great young core, the Russell Wilson, Richard Sherman, Earl Thomas, uh, Cam Chancellor. All those guys were still young. They were still on their rookie deals or just coming into their first extensions. And they go out there and they sign Bennett. They sign Averill. Um, you know, Marshawn Lynch came a little before that, but that, that was another somewhat cost effective signing that they had there. And that's the way that they target. So that makes sense to me then. So Jacksonville would necessarily hover around the salary floor as they build a young nucleus and they wait for it to coalesce, they wait for it to show potential, and then at that point you push the button to add free agents, but you have to wait for a guy like Blake Bortles to fire. Right. I think that happened in Oakland, hovering around the salary floor for many years. Finally, they hit on Derek Carr, they hit on Amari Cooper, they hit on Khalil Mack, Finally, the young nucleus has coalesced. Then boom, 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 free agents. And then make a run of the Super Bowl. That's the right approach. That's the right strategy for managing your cap space is what I'm hearing. Yeah, that that's basically Oakland. Uh, they definitely got it right. And in many ways, Oakland and Jacksonville are almost like mirror images of one another in the way that they approach things. The big difference, of course, is that car is terrific. Bortles, not so much. Um, so that makes all the difference in the world that the Raiders can justify, you know, continuing to spend, you know, they're, they're going to save money because they do have to resign Mac and Carr um, in the near future. They, they do have to earmark some money for that, but they can continue spending because they do have this young group and they can continue to add to that and build to that. Whereas Jacksonville, they really need to take a step back because their, their team is a disaster and you see it. They, they've already, you know, these big signings from two years ago, uh, Udrick House is going to go now. Um, you know, Ivory, you mentioned before, he should go. He's still got some guaranteed salary. Those are that that's a team that is just throwing uh, throwing darts at a board just to try and get guys to come onto that team. But without that group really in place that's effective, and I know, you know from a fantasy perspective, they're probably fine. Because at the end of these games, you'll see the two receivers will put up some uh, some numbers and the quarterback throws some late touchdowns. But when it comes to the, the the regular NFL game, for three quarters, they're just not competitive. And their approach has been a disaster. I once compared Blake Bortles to a music festival porta potty I'm on record saying that. And it's I marvel at what the Patriots are doing because they become the self-fulfilling prophecy. That's how winning begets winning and 
losing begets losing in places like Miami and Houston. They can't find a quarterback. They're trying to sign free agents. They have to overpay to get players to come there, whereas the Patriots are just opening their doors and players like Chris Long, as you mentioned, are volunteering to play for less because they want to be associated with the Patriots. They want to be associated with a winner. So winning creates more winning. And in other places, losing helps to create more losing. It's this self-fulfilling prophecy, this positive feedback loop that the Patriots have found themselves in. So we shouldn't be surprised when they win a sixth Super Bowl, maybe a seventh Super Bowl, because they're in a positive feedback loop. And as long as Belichick and Brady are there, there's no reason to think that they will fall out of it. Now, what was the most surprising contract that you saw signed last season? You know, there were a couple. Uh, I mean, the most surprising one for me to see done was Muhammad Wilkerson. Now, that didn't actually happen until July. He was a uh, franchise player. Um, they didn't get that deal done until the last possible second that you could sign a franchise player to an extension. That one shocked me. Uh, it shocked me that the Jets did it, given the state of their roster. It shocked me the size of the contract, given where they really wanted to sign him at a couple of years before. Uh, that that was a pretty shocking deal. Um Earlier in the offseason, I mean, Sam Bradford, that surprised me where he went. Uh, the two tight ends, Fleener and especially Dwayne Allen, I, I thought those were insane contracts for, uh, you know, guys who just aren't that good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dwayne Allen is the ultimate replacement level talent at the tight end position. Oh, yeah. Dwayne Allen is one of the worst contracts in the league. I mean, you you won't people won't look at it that way because he's not paid you know, 12 million, 13, 14, 15 million a year. And he's paid like 7 million. So whatever the number is, but it's one of the worst contracts in the league. When you look at the valuation that they gave him, he's, he's just not that good. Uh, he was pretty much terrible the whole year, except for that one game against the jets where he just went insane. I think on the Monday night, one game. Yeah. But beyond that, there was nothing one for 16 Dwayne Allen. Yeah. So I, I have no idea what they've ever seen in him, uh, whatsoever. Me either. They've chased something there and, uh, you know, they, they've done pretty good by him in terms of uh, paying him. So that that was just crazy to me. Uh, on the other side of the coin, I mean, Mitchell Schwartz, Casey Hayward, those guys got deals that were so far under what I expected them to get. Um, it was surprising. You know, the right tackles aren't paid that much. I thought this guy had a chance to do something with that. Didn't happen whatsoever. Uh, Hayward is a He's a terrific player. I know there maybe were some questions about where on the field he could play and probably the fact that the Packers were willing to move on from him. That might have raised some red flags in places because the Packers don't usually do that. So some teams might look at that as a as a uh, caution sign with him. But I was very surprised with uh, where he went and they got a great bargain in him. Uh, And every year you do see that. You'll see a couple guys who fall through the cracks and you go, wow, how did that happen? Um, you know, and sometimes they work out sometimes they don't, you know, Jay Howard last year in Kansas city, that was a guy based on his pass rushing ability. I thought was going to get more in free agency. Didn't, uh, sign what I thought was a good deal with Kansas city, but then really wasn't impactful last year, got hurt. And now people probably look at that and say, Hey, is he going to even make it through this year? Will he get released? But at the time I thought that was a pretty good contract as well for Kansas city. Um, so it goes both ways where you do get bargains And then you get some other guys where you just kind of scratch your head like a Dwayne Allen and say, how did this happen? What are they looking at that I'm not and the other 31 teams aren't looking at, uh, you know, to to do that kind of deal? 
That Dwayne Allen contract, a complete befuddlement. Casey Hayward, we had him as a top 10 cornerback on the playerprofiler.com cornerback rankings. We now have cornerback pages on playerprofiler.com. Check those out. Casey Hayward's good by almost every metric that we have. Coverage rating, breakups per snap, fantasy points allowed per snap, passer rating against Casey Hayward. was excellent last season. The most underrated cornerback in the league, Casey Hayward. And now we know he's had a tremendous value with his contract. And it makes sense because Ted Thompson is the most overrated general manager in the league. He's thought of as this guru. And who has he signed? Who has he drafted that's impressive? They have Aaron Rodgers. And they have Aaron Rodgers. And they thought they had Sam Shields at cornerback. And they were fine. And they let Casey Hayward go. And then Sam Shields played one game last season. And when I look at Sam Shields, it makes me wonder about the fairness of NFL contracts generally. Because given the physical toll the game takes on players, I think we would all feel better as fans and analysts if they had more guarantees in their contracts. I'm not saying make them fully guaranteed like a baseball player. That wouldn't make sense. But... I can see adding more guarantees. Do you think it'd be feasible to grant some kind of hybrid guaranteed contracts to NFL players at some point? Because when you look at the case of Sam Shields, he was literally knocked out with a concussion and never returned, and his career is likely over. How does the NFL handle these situations when it comes to injury settlements? Do you agree with that approach, and do you think that it should be changed to create a, a more equitable environment for players, especially that have their careers ended because of injury? Well, uh, there is some protection in the collective bargaining agreement for players like that if they're basically if they're knocked out playing the game and they can't come back. Now, it's not a lot of money. It's not the same money that he was looking at making this year. You know, nine million, eleven, whatever his number was. Um, you know, it's not going to be that it's going to be more like 1 million, one five, which, oh. you know, for, I'm sure you and I is great. Oh, it's brutal though. They just, the, just to, when you look at the relativity of it, 9 yeah. million versus a million and a half, if they just implemented a rule that said, Hey, if you get knocked out with injury and your career is over, well, we're going to at least pay you the amount of your next year. We'll give you a year on us. If we knock you out of the league because your head doesn't work anymore or your leg doesn't work anymore. You get one year of full pay. That sounds fair to me. Well, that's something that agents can try and negotiate right now. Um, you won't see that really happen. You know, there's a trade-off that has to happen for what you're looking for. Um, you know, the NFL, if you look at the career, the life cycle of a player, you throw out quarterbacks. Quarterbacks are completely different than just about any other position. But you look at the life cycle of the players, the minute that they, they put the pen to paper on their first contract extension, usually the performance starts to go down for those players. So you've got a skill risk. And you've also got the injury risk, especially as the injuries begin to, you know, add up. So if you have a roster where you've got a maximum of uh, 53 guys during the regular season that are active and you can carry, I don't know what it is. I think it's maybe 80 players during the year on various reserve lists and everything else. You've got a salary cap, which isn't going to impact some teams, but for others, it is going to be impactful. It becomes very difficult to have to carry those players um, even just an extra season, especially at those big kind of numbers, uh, if they're not going to be producing. So I, I do think that there is an avenue to do more guarantees and contracts, but the trade-off on that is probably going to be that some of the players 
have to take less money in terms of the overall value of the contract to you know get more of it guaranteed and i think that's a legitimate question that you can ask if you're someone like sam shields what would you have better been better off doing would you have been better off taking a contract that was maybe four years 28 million of which let's say it was all guaranteed or doing what he did which was probably four years 36 million and i'm not sure i'm not necessarily sure what he earned from that i might have the numbers wrong on him let's say 22 guaranteed yeah and let's say that's what he ended up with is 20 between 22 and 26 million which which would have been better for him to do um so i think those are the trade-offs you know because if you're a player who outperforms that contract, you look at a guy like Antonio Brown in Pittsburgh who signed a contract that gave him, you know, kind of some certainty, uh, cost certainty for the future uh, by signing a deal just two years into his career for about eight and a half, eight, nine million a season. When he outplays that, you know, he, he is basically the most underpaid player in the league by about nine million dollars a year. Now, he's able to get that next contract that's going to pay him again. But a lot of times that doesn't happen. So th- th- there's a trade-off that that has to exist um, if players are going to look for more guarantees. I do think there's teams that would be open to doing that. The question is, would the players, more so I think the player agents, because they're the ones who are really steering most of it, are they going to be willing to kind of take that hit in the media and go, well, how come you know that guy didn't get the $17 million a year? But then you come back and say, well, you know, he got... $50 million fully guaranteed at signing. And, you know, that, that that's kind of a trade-off that uh, I think might exist um, in the future. But it, it's not there right now. Drew Rosenhaus gets paid in full on the signing bonus the moment it's paid. Oh, this is all starting to make a lot more sense, Jason. When you start going down the rabbit hole... Who do you find sitting in the den with their feet up, smoking a cigar? The agents! That's who. There, there's a lot of people who are involved in the contracts and the way that the uh, the payments are going to break down and you know how, how they want things structured and everything else. So I, I think it's a ways away. Uh, but I do think there's going to be a point in time where you will see a team that is going to try and actually do a lot of fully guaranteed contracts for players but get them at what look like bargain prices uh, in terms of like a per year dollar amount. Uh, but I do think eventually there will be one team that can do that and talk some players into it. And if they're successful, much like the Patriots and the way they, they do things, um, they might be successful in attracting better players in the future using a system like that. But that that's still years away. And the players would be more apt to accept it given the injury rates that are rising now as well. So there's less players that are willing to bet on themselves as the injury rates continue to go up and up and up. And you also mentioned something interesting with Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's like New England in that they've been a successful franchise. They've been in the playoffs most years. And when you think of the Pittsburgh Steelers and we do word association, successful franchise championship franchise and what are they doing like the patriots like the patriots did with gronkowski for example signing a player after a couple years to an extension the better teams also are better at self-scouting and jumping in and taking risks on players after only seeing them for a year or two signing them to a quick extension getting those extra couple years pushing off their free agent date a couple years and getting those players at value if they continue to ascend so the teams that have great confidence in their self-scouting and then confidence in themselves to 
sign a player at what they believe is a value after year two, they're the ones that can set up their contract structures up in a certain way that they can start to get a lot of their stars on value-based contracts like we saw with Gronkowski in the last couple of years. Yeah, they're, they're one of those teams that does that, and the most successful teams are the ones who are able to do that. Uh, first of all, if you're signing a player now, let, let use Odell Beckham, for example. If the Giants were to sign him now, let's say he gets $17, $18 million a year, their other option is they can wait two more years to do that. Well, two years from now, that $18 million is probably going to grow to about 20 or $21 million. And they don't have the same amount of years to spread out the salary cap hits because they, they have the ability, if they sign now, to spread it out over a, a different period of time. And those are the teams that are going to be successful that can get in there and do that quick because you don't want to be a team that gets in, into this position like, for example, San Diego now having to franchise tag Melvin Ingram. It's like, what's the point of that? You know, is there a point in structuring these contracts this way to where you've now put yourself at a salary cap limit because you got to throw this expensive franchise tag number on him? Last year, you carried him at like $8 million. Just extend him, get it out of the way, get it over with. It would have been cheaper, you know, just to get it done. You look at uh, Eric Berry just signs with Kansas City today. Kansas City didn't want to sign him last year for $11 million a year. And I, I'm not even sure what they, they went up to today, $12 million, $13 million a year. So, again, what was the point of doing the one-year franchise tag? Just give him the $11 million a year last year instead of having to go around and now pay him eight, uh, $13 million a year by waiting one year to do it. And it, it just – Sometimes teams just don't make sense, I think, with the, the way that they look at those things. You have to take a long view and not necessarily that short-term approach. And too many teams take the short-term approach, and that screws them up. And that's the San Diego Chargers in a nutshell. Anytime you see a team with elite quarterback play, like San Diego's getting from Phillip Rivers, every year continue to miss the playoffs, you can point the finger in one direction, the front office. Now, a team that franchise-tagged a, a player today, the Steelers, they franchise-tagged Le'Veon Bell. Were you surprised that they franchise-tagged Le'Veon Bell? How common is it for a team to franchise-tag a running back? Uh, it, it's probably not the most common thing to franchise a running back, but it, it's understandable, uh, especially in this case. Um, you look at Bell's situation, you look at someone who's had uh, multiple knee injuries, couple of suspensions. Uh, he's been worked into the ground by the Steelers. I mean, they, they basically, as soon as he came back from suspension last year, it was just him all the time. I mean, they, they had an effective backup who just basically got relegated to the bench for the rest of the year. So when you look at it that way, you say, you know what, it might make sense for them to just have a one year deal with him and, you know, probably move on next year if they can't come to some kind of agreement. Because one of the players that I, I liken him to, if you remember Arian Foster, uh, when he was really at his peak in Houston, and Houston ended up signing him to a very, very, very player-friendly contract. And at the time, they completely ran him into the ground. So as soon as that extension kicked in, his injuries began to pile up at, at a really high rate. And when he was healthy, I mean, he gave them absolute great performances. But too often, they paid him to just sit on the sidelines. And that happens a lot with running backs. So I, I wasn't surprised by this one at all because he's a Bell is a special player uh, when he's on the field. But I don't know if you can guarantee that you're going to get another three years from him. So it, it might be better in their case to, uh, you know, take the one year and then bail after that. 
So the franchise tag is almost better used on players at the more disposable positions like running back. And if you get to a point where you're having to franchise tag a player who is a cornerstone piece, then you've done something wrong. Yeah, I I would agree with that. Um, You know, your franchise tag really should only come into play with guys who, you know, if if you see yourself as a team that has a window to win, and you say, this guy is so important to our window, we can't let him go, but we can't justify having him here long term either. Okay, you franchise tag that player. You know, if it's an older player, maybe moving towards the end of the career of his career, but really still effective, yeah, you can franchise tag him. If it's a one-year wonder and you've just really got a lot of questions about a long-term deal, go ahead and do it. But when you're talking about uh, some of these players that you see that do get franchise tagged, It just doesn't make sense. They're just players that you should have gotten done before instead of getting into these wars over negotiating and then trying to scramble and get a deal done at the last minute. I I mentioned uh, Wilkerson with the Jets before. That's a perfect example. They had two years to get a deal done with that guy. Couldn't get it done. His price goes up by about $4 million, I think, over where they were before. $4 million a year. Now they're stuck with him, and they probably don't want him. Uh, I don't know if they want anybody on that team right now. Um, but, you know, they, they got themselves stuck in that deal. And it, it just made no sense. And that there's again, there's too many teams uh, that just, I think, don't approach it the right way. They look at it short term. They don't have a long term view. And uh, that screws them up. And a lot of guys probably get fired for that. And there's turnover in the front office. and There's turnover in the coaching staff, which, again, creates more losing. The losing begets losing. The winning creates more winning. When you look at salaries by position, talk about the running back position, the salaries continue to decrease with the running backs. We see these free agent running backs signing for what players that don't start sign for, backups. So which positions carry less value than the running back position at this point? Very few. Uh, Right tackle, um, maybe your right guard is a little bit less. Um, You're brutal. Yeah, you're kind of your three, four defensive tackles, your your traditional, you know, your gap eating run stuffer kind of guys. Um, they don't really make too much money. And left guard is probably so. So left guard has some guys who are making more money than the uh, running backs. But then they have a couple of guys who are also less. But that's pretty much it. It's really your right tackle, right guard and your uh, three, four defensive tackles. Those are really the only ones. Everybody else is better off than a running back nowadays. Well, let's focus on wide receiver then. That's why we're here, baby. Wide receiver wins fantasy football championships. Where do you see these three wide receivers landing just based on their skill set and the salary cap space fit versus what you think their salary cap demands are going to be? Going to give you three. Terrell Pryor. Uh, I think Pryor stays in Cleveland. Um, Pryor's bounced, uh, he's bounced around the league. Um, I I don't know if teams are going to go overboard in paying him or not. He didn't have a a strong close to the season. I think that's one of the things that really hurts him. Uh, granted he was not playing with much of a quarterback there. Um, you know, the, the way that they bounced around all those players, he didn't mesh very well with RG three at the end. You kind of had a guy who peaked probably about eight, nine games in, and then things started to go down from there. You never want to go into free agency that way. I don't know if there are other teams who are going to meet what he probably wants to get um, contractually um, other than Cleveland. I still think Cleveland might put the transition tag on him. So they'll let him go out and shop his services and then they can match any offer that he receives. Um, But I I don't know. I'm not sure I can see him 
you look at teams like San Francisco, I think San Francisco needs something that they would consider more of a sure, you know, a sure bet than prior who there's going to be question marks about as to, um, you know, how far he can really go. You know, the, the upside is clearly there, but it was in Cleveland. The games meant nothing. Uh, we've seen some players, you know, like a he's better than uh, Benjamin. So I, I don't want to say that he's the same as that. But you look at Benjamin. Benjamin put up some big numbers in Cleveland the year before. Trails off at the end. He signs for, I think, 6'5 out in San Diego. Um, you know, so I, I think Pryor's best bet is probably to uh, stay in Cleveland. Alshon Jeffrey. Jeffrey's going to make a lot of money. Yeah, baby. <laughs> you don't see – see, Jeffrey is a legitimate tier one receiver. You don't see these guys hit free agency. Now, I know he had the injury two years ago. He had the suspension last year. You know, He's played with some garbage at quarterback in Chicago. Um, but uh, in the, the half year that he was healthy two years ago, I mean, he was the offense. The offense ran through him when he was on the field. So I, – I, you don't see guys like that. You know, Des Bryant doesn't make free agency. Demarius Thomas doesn't make free agency. AJ Green doesn't make free agency. None of these guys make free agency. So we talk about a guy who's going to get paid. This guy is going to get paid. Where he's going to go, I don't know. You know, I, I I look at him and I look at the success he had when he was there with Brandon Marshall. I'd like to see him actually go to a team that has another really viable option. I'd love to see him in a place like Seattle. I'd love to see him in a place like Indianapolis. If Baltimore had the money, I wouldn't mind throwing him in Baltimore and uh, having him play with uh, even Mike Wallace there. Seattle can afford Alshon Jeffrey? They've made moves before. Um, you know, Jimmy Graham is in the last year of his contract there. They could always even look to trade him if they don't think they can make a long-term agreement with Jimmy Graham and they can just kind of swap out uh, and say, we'll go with the two guys on the outside, um, you know, playing receiver, and we'll do something else at tight end. Probably more likely he's going to end up in Philadelphia, uh, maybe San Francisco. Tennessee would be interesting. Tennessee was my favorite spot for him. Tennessee would be interesting. The worry that I would have with Tennessee, Tennessee has never, ever, ever, ever um, signed basically a big-name free agent. The last big contract you will find from Tennessee happened, I think, in 2011 or 2012, whatever the year was that they extended Chris Johnson. That was back when um, – Jeff Fisher. Yeah, Fisher. He was still the coach on that team at the time. Their highest paid player right now, I believe, is Casey at $9 million. They're the only team in the league that doesn't even have like a $12 million player. So I don't know if they can go out there and say, all right, we'll pay $17 million for a wide receiver. I don't know if in their mind they can justify doing it, even though when you look at the construction of that team and you yes. look at where they are and you yes. look at the young talent. They're ready. They're coalescing. Their nucleus is coalescing. They're ready, Jason. They should be out there spending, but yes. I can't say they're going to do it because I've never seen uh. them do it. I've never seen them. I'm excited for this one. Alshon Jeffrey, number one, but also Deshaun Jackson. Oh, you know, that that's a tough one. Um, Jackson has a very unique skill set, but he's going to be 31 years old. I, I have a very hard time projecting the kind of money that he's going to get. I know the money he's going to be looking for is probably going to be in that 11 to $12 million range. Uh, I'm sure he's going to look at what Doug Baldwin and Emmanuel Sanders got and say, I should be getting at least that much money. I don't know if that market is going to be there necessarily for him or not. Uh, traditionally, a player like Jackson, that market would not be there for them. And I think if his price was back down in that eight, nine million range, I think he'd have a lot of teams jumping at him. 
if he's really steadfast on 11, I, I kind of feel like Philadelphia is going to be a place where he's really going to be in play as, uh, you know, kind of a primary target. Obviously, staying in Washington is going to be something that they're going to consider pretty strongly with him. I, I, I look at those as kind of the two leading teams. Um, I think he probably clashed too much with Andy Reid to go to Kansas City. Uh, Kansas City is definitely a team that could use a receiver, but I, I don't know – uh, if they would really entertain that. Um, I, I don't even know if he would fit there with the, the players that they necessarily have. Um, but I, I think Philly or Washington are going to be the uh, the spots that really focus on, on him. Um, would Miami get interested in someone like that if they let Stills walk, if he comes in cheaper than Stills? Maybe. Maybe they could use him as a uh, kind of a down-the-field, stretch-the-field oh, guy. Oh, that is such a Miami move to sign Deshaun Jackson. How Miami is it to sign Deshaun Jackson? You you can never discount Mike Tannenbaum from doing things like that. Uh, you, you look at the deal they did even last year with Mario Williams. It's like, you know, you, you sign a guy who's washed up, who didn't really have interest anywhere else. Yeah, you look at a comparable player like a Charles Johnson. He signs for like $3 million in uh, Carolina, and you pay seven and a half for Mario Williams. But that's Miami. So I, I could I could see them get involved with something like that, but he'd have to be a, he'd have to come in less than Kenny Stills uh, for them to probably justify saying we're going to go with the older guy in Jackson rather than the younger guy in Stills. Well, reports have surfaced that Kenny Stills could command twelve million dollars a year. So is that realistic? And is there a dark horse team that could be in play for Kenny Stills? Because we know these field stretchers are rare assets and they command a lot of money. I don't know. I, I think 12 million a year is just that that's kind of insane given what he's done. Uh, when you look at the, the career performance so far, he tracks in with that second tier class of those 8 million kind of guys. Again, things in free agency happen. Those numbers are probably being floated by the same people saying Mike Glennon is going to get 17, 18 million dollars a year. Um, but I, you can't discount it. If Kenny Stills is looked at as the second or third best receiver, someone is going to sign him probably for a lot of money, especially if you have a player like Jeffrey who gets interest from multiple teams. Well, then the dominoes fall after that because when all these teams that were planning on getting this guy don't get him, well, now they have to scramble to find another player that fits in. Maybe someone like Stills is going to be their backup uh, in that case, and they're going to pay a lot of money uh, just to make sure they get him. You know, a couple of years ago, when you had a couple of receivers that hit, I think Greg Jennings kind of fell into that category. He was the guy that was like the third or fourth on the want list. Minnesota didn't get anybody. They end up getting Jennings. They have to pay him pretty good salary for someone who was uh, kind of getting up there in age. Um, so Stills could fall into that same category as well. Oh, remember a couple of years ago, the Eagles thought they were going to get Frank Gore, and then he shocked the world signing with Indianapolis, and then they scrambled for DeMarco Murray. Yep, yeah. And they signed him to a pretty outlandish contract of seven, eight million a year. It was a uh, it was a weird situation, and it was all reactionary. You know, they had this vision of what they were going to do, and then they ended up with DeMarco Murray, Ryan Matthews, and Darren Sproles. That's right. It was lunacy. Redundant assets. What are you doing? And they they sunk all this money in, and you know they really had no way out of it. They luckily for them they were able to find a trade partner. Um, 
you know, to take Murray off their hands. And that worked out best for both sides because he was not going to be successful in Philadelphia with the schemes they were running, the players they had there. But he's very successful in Tennessee. So that worked out best for both parties. But more often than not, you have a guy that's probably just going to sulk on the bench in that situation. Um, and th- those are the things that happen sometimes in free agency. And you see that a lot. You will see players that you don't think are going to get something, but you know they're they're kind of that that backup 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 and well we we got to get somebody so whatever this guy wants let's give it to him because then they're going to be afraid of losing him to someone else and then they're they're really sunk when the just a guy gets a contract of a stud a guy that's the third or fourth or fifth or sixth player at his position group gets overpaid because so many teams expected to get an upgrade, lost out in a bidding war, and he just happened to be the last guy standing to fill a need and just plug him in. But there's the other side of the equation where you see a player who we all think is good somehow doesn't get offers in free agency, and he's just lingering. Like, who's the guy that a week into free agency is going to remain unsigned and we're all going to be surprised. Um, you know, I, I think uh, uh, I'll give you a name. Well, I, I think Terrell Pryor is one of them. If uh, he doesn't uh, get tagged, I, I think he can actually sit out there for a little while. Uh, I think Dante Hightower from the new England Patriots. I think there's a, a chance that he may not get the interest that, uh, that they're thinking. Um, again, you're talking about a player who's kind of being abandoned by the Patriots he doesn't put up necessarily the uh, the craziest of statistics, and I think there might be a feeling that he's going to be willing to go back to the Patriots with any offer he gets, and the Patriots will just basically match that, even though they're not using the tag. So I could th- see some teams being a little uh, a little cautious on him. Uh, I think Nick Fairley from uh, the Saints, he had a terrific season. There's so many question marks around him. Uh, I could see him sitting for a while. And I don't know what's going to happen with uh, Don Terry Poe. I guess the Chiefs are going to franchise him. If he doesn't get franchised, I, I don't know. That's one of those players. There's a lot of talent. Uh, there's a lot of ability that's certainly there, but the back has been a problem for a couple of years. And I don't know how teams are going to react to that. Uh, you know, are they going to take that risk of paying him a really big salary, or are they just going to kind of wait, kind of let the market set itself, and then see if they can swoop in and get him at a more reasonable price? Uh, but I think those are those are kind of the players that would be big name guys that might be out there at least for a little while. Now, now watch, they'll all go sign on the first day of free agency. But uh, th- those are the guys that I would look at and say, you know what, they, they might not get as much interest right off the bat as people think. Who's going to make the most money? Is it Alshon Jeffrey or someone like Tony Romo? Oh, no, it, it'll uh, Jeffrey is probably the guy who's going to make the most, um, you know, of the, the actual free agents who are out there. Romo's older. Um, Romo's had a lot of injuries the last two years. My guess is Romo's contract is going to have a lot of incentives in it. So uh, yes, there's probably going to be upside potential to make more than Jeffrey, but the base value of that deal is probably going to be less um, just because there's so many question marks around him. And the fact that he was going to play this year, if he stayed in Dallas for 14 million, there's some teams that might hold that against him and kind of say, Hey, we're going to play for 14 million in Dallas. Let, let's, let's work with 14 million and we'll, we'll work up from there. Um, you know, with incentives, if you if you're healthy or we make the playoffs, we win a Super Bowl. Um, so I, I would look at Jeffrey and say, you know, that that's probably the guy who's going to make the most. So what's your favorite hypothetical quarterback landing spot? Because mine is Tyrod Taylor in Denver. I love the idea of the mobile Tyrod Taylor scrambling, rolling out 
and then having the ability to either hit Demarius Thomas on a drag route or go deep to Emmanuel Sanders. Do you have a perfect hypothetical scenario for a quarterback that's available? You know, that that's not a bad one. Um, they were interested in Colin Kaepernick last year. I think there's a lot of the same skill sets that are in those two players. Taylor's younger. There's more upside. There's more potential in him than Kaepernick. I don't know if uh, Denver would be willing to pay, uh, pay Taylor whatever he's looking for, but I, I'm not sure what market's going to be there for Taylor anyway. But I, I think that's actually a pretty good one. Uh, I think if Tony Romo also went to Denver, I, I think if Romo went to Kansas City, I think both of those could actually be kind of interesting um, to see happen. And it, it, this is nothing in terms of a favorite for me, but if you want to see the return of something crazy, see the return of Matt Schaub, uh, as a starting quarterback, if he goes to San Francisco, if uh, you know they're not able to do anything better than that, that wouldn't stun me at all. Uh, no he's been, way. You know, he's been around Kyle Shanahan for a long time. Get uh, you out. Know, he was there in Houston with him. He was there in Atlanta. He knows the system. If they draft someone, that's a good veteran to have as a. Uh, you're punking kind of me. Board. This is you're being silly now. I I will not be shocked if Matt Schaub ends up as the uh, a potential starting quarterback in San Francisco for at least a couple of games this year before they. Uh, it, I shouldn't wow. say that if they're unable to land someone that's uh, that's bigger, I could see that being their uh, very cheap fallback plan for the year. Look at these restricted free agents as well. I noticed Isaiah Crowell happens to be a restricted free agent because he was signed as a free agent out of college. He wasn't drafted. That means this year, unlike Duke Johnson, Isaiah Crowell is actually a restricted free agent. Is there any chance that Isaiah Crowell goes on one of these C.J. Anderson-like restricted free agent tours and forces the Browns to match? No, I, I would say there's no chance of that. They're, they gave him the second-round tender yesterday, so anyone that would sign him would have to surrender a second-round draft pick. Anderson last year did not. That was just a right of first refusal, so there was really no risk involved for someone to do that. Um, so I, I can't see someone giving a second-round pickup for him. Uh, and even still, even if that wasn't the case, the fact that the Browns have so much cap room and so little talent on that roster – I don't think teams would waste the time of negotiate, basically negotiating a contract for the Cleveland Browns. Um, so e even if they had done that, he probably was going to stay there anyway. But the second round tender makes it a given. There, there's no way anyone's given up a second round pick for him. That's what you mentioned with Hightower. Why am I going to be your leverage? I'm not going to just waste time opting to be your leverage. Don't come to me asking to be your leverage. I'm not going to give you any offers. I know where you're going to sign. Go sign there. But don't use my offer as leverage. Get out of here. Yep, that's uh, absolutely the case. Now, I've heard that it's better to sign early in free agency before, quote unquote, the money dries up. Is that true or is that a fallacy? Uh, I think that's pretty much true. Um, the The biggest spending happens early. Uh, you see that. Um, there, there are a couple of exceptions to that rule. Um, you will see some players that go longer in there. And again, if it's we're talking about a deep position, you know, they, they kind of get that leftover money that, uh, you know, where teams have them earmarked for a bigger name player. And then they're like, all right, well, we got to get this guy. Um but if you're not at a position like that where you think there's just multiple teams interested in the position, take the best offer that you think you can get early on. Uh, it probably doesn't pay to wait for a week and certainly not two weeks. Um, by that point in time, teams are going to use it against you. Um, they're going to say, you know, there, there hasn't been a market for you. Where else are you going to go? Um, and that's usually the way it happens. The only time 
recently that that hasn't occurred was last year with Ryan Fitzpatrick, where somehow he just held out the entire summer with nowhere to go, no other team possible that would want him and convince the Jets to give him $12 million anyway. That was probably that that's by far the the exception to the rule. Uh, otherwise, that money is it's best at the beginning when you can claim the most teams are out there looking to sign you. It's almost like Mike Tannenbaum was still the GM of the Jets. Yeah, his spirit lives on in Florham Park. <laughs> One of the most amazing numbers that I saw this year, looking at cap space and amount of spending on various positions, was the incredible number that the Seattle Seahawks spent on their offensive line that not only did they come in at number 32 in offensive line spending, that they were half of the number 31 ranked team in offensive line spending. How does that happen, and how can they fix this? Well, they they made a conscious decision uh, probably two starting two seasons ago, I guess. Uh, maybe it was three years ago that they just were not going to invest in their offensive line. When you look at the players, and I'm not saying that these were necessarily great players that they had, but you look at what they've lost – they let Okun leave to free agency, Sweezy leaves to free agency, uh, Carpenter leaves to free agency, Giacomini leaves to free agency, Unger gets traded away. They have basically let everybody walk, and they replace them with bottom feeders is basically what they do. Guys that don't even play offensive line, never played the position before, Jason. They, they live off the fact that they think that their quarterback is able to create enough to make up for the fact that their line is relatively awful. Can Russell Wilson sue them for this? Can he sue them for negligence over this? Uh, I, I don't know about that, but if he gets hurt again, um, you know, they're going to say, uh, what did we do? It makes me enraged to think that they are squandering one of the best quarterbacks we've ever seen in his prime by giving him absolutely no protection, and it's not like an accident. Like two years ago, all the offensive linemen on the New England Patriots got hurt all at once. Solder, gone. Bulmer, out. Devastated. It's not like that. They're willingly doing this. They are actively trying to dismantle their own offensive line out of some, out of some masochistic strategy that doesn't make any sense look at what the dallas cowboys did last year building around the offensive line building from the inside out and they became the most efficient offense in the nfc that's how you do it meanwhile russell wilson is playing hurt all year because he can't get more than three seconds to throw on any given pass play yeah, well, you know, Seattle has a uh, a different way of approaching things, and they have they have one of the actually they probably have the biggest superstar lineup in the league in terms of salaries. Where you look at the money they have spent on safety, the money they have spent on cornerback, the money they have spent now on their defensive line, uh, the money at the quarterback position. For a period of time, what they were doing with Marshawn Lynch, you have Doug Baldwin on a pretty high contract given uh, where he's at. Jimmy Graham making ten million dollars this year. What they've decided is they're going to to spend all that. They're going to pinch the offensive line and they're going to pinch the depth on the back end of the team with just all undrafted kind of players, cheap players. And you might get an idea this year if that's going to change a little bit. Uh, I think uh, their center, uh, Britt, is in the final year of his contract. So if they don't extend him this year, probably means they're going to let him walk too. And he's the only guy on that team probably with a pulse on the line. So you'll get an idea. But if you see them going out there in free agency, and not there's a ton of great players on the offensive line, but 
if you see them going out there and finding a left tackle who's going to make $2 million, you just know that they're, they're going nowhere. And yeah, they, they spent, I think, $8 million on their, their offensive line. And it's not like $8 million. <laughs> this is gross negligence. I'm a Russell Wilson dynasty owner in fantasy football. This is unacceptable, Jason that's just the way that they do it. You know, that that's what they've gone with. And it's not like their line is a bunch of first round draft picks to where you'd say, okay, the spending is low because they have a bunch of first rounders that were picked in the twenties. No, no. They just have guys. On Nobody's. The team. That, that's it. Um, so it, it's just a very different approach and they have a lot of extensions coming up. You just saw them give a pretty hefty one to Bennett. Um, they're going to have Averill looking for a new contract soon. You're going to have Earl Thomas, Richard Sherman, all these guys the next year, not this year, but the following year are probably going to look for new deals. Maybe even the end of the season, they'll look for a new deal. So that's where the money is going to go. That, that's where that's where Seattle sees their bread and butter. And, you know, as Wilson gets older and you're not going to be able to run around the way that you were when you were younger, it's going to be probably harder and harder for him to stay healthy. And you know, he gets hit hard one of these times, breaks a collarbone or gets a high ankle sprain that really limits him. It's really going to show uh, the problems with that line once that happens. Are you listening to this, Seattle Seahawks fans? Are you hearing what he's saying? All these star defensive players are going to have to be extended or released soon. And they already have no cap space left, not enough space. They have no cap room whatsoever to invest even the baseline amount of money in the offensive line. This is only going to get worse every year that goes by, and they have to continue to give out these big contracts to the stars on the defensive side of the ball. Just start to run the numbers in your head. Start to play this out in your head, Seattle Seahawks fans. You are fucked. Jason Fitzpatrick, uh, over the cap. What, what, what is, is, is the CEO? You got the last name wrong. Fitzgerald. Ryan Fitzpatrick ruined it for you. God damn it. Jason Fitzpatrick. I did it again. I can't believe I. I can't believe I just did it again. With Jason Fitzpat. With Jason Fitzgerald. God damn it. This is going to be a mess. Jason Fitz. With Jason Fitzgerald. They don't spend it all on that unit. It's, uh, but it's something that's gone on for a while. You know, it's one of those things where, when you you do it kind of the way they did, which is dismantling one piece here, two pieces the next year, two pieces the following year, you don't see it until it's all gone, and then you look at what's there and you say, how did this happen? You know, it, it's kind of like when, um, you know, the Saints. You, you look at the Saints salary cap. You look at all that huge dead money that they have year after year after year. When I first started the site, I used to talk about this back in 2013. I said, these guys are putting themselves in a position where 2015, 2016, they are going to be completely screwed. People said, oh, no, you're an idiot. You don't see that. Then the, those years roll around. They go, well, what happened to the Saints? Bye-bye. You saw this two years ago. You know, there, There's teams where you just see those things happen. And with Seattle, uh, you just saw it happen piece by piece by piece. And once they made no effort to resign the left tackle last year, 
that was when it just was like, okay, wait a minute, what what is really going on here? You know, they they're just letting everybody go. Yeah, it, it's just a, it's a very odd strategy. They've decided to just go in a completely different direction with the way they build that team, and it's it's very different than anyone else in the NFL. But it's very hard to win in the NFL when you don't have any kind of viable bodies on that offensive line. There are a lot of veteran tackles this year, and it's possible maybe they're going to say, okay, we we realize we screwed up. Now, even those players, you know, whether they go to Beecham, they go back to Okun, those guys are still going to cost them five, six, seven million dollars. I mean, that's going to double their investment in the offensive line right there. My guess is they're, they're going to look at like some guy who started you know, five games as a, you know, in Tennessee or something like that as a left tackle, right tackle, you know, just swing tackle kind of guy and say, yeah, we'll slot him in. They're just going to keep making the playoffs by default and losing in the first round. Yeah. And you see that you, you see that sometimes, uh, yeah, I think even the Packers have been in that way a couple of, couple of these years where they, they refuse to add in free agency completely. And they've probably wasted a couple of years there by not adding to, you know, the roster that they had because, okay, yeah, the NFC North is a relative cakewalk. You know, may, maybe you have one team that competes against them a little bit and then the quarterback gets hot so they can always win one game, but they just don't have enough to get over the hump to get back to the Super Bowl anymore. And every now and then you, you see teams that do that. And, uh, you know, I, I think if you're a fan of those teams, it has to be very disappointing. If you're a player on those teams who's really good, that's got to be disappointing. I'm sure Drew Brees is pretty frustrated being in New Orleans when every year he looks at it and says, God, a quarter of our cap space every year is just lost to players who aren't on the team. Like, what are we doing year after year? Why am I still here? I would love to just be a fly on a wall with Philip Rivers and Drew Brees talking about their team front offices by the end of the year a lot of times at rivers he plays the games at times at the end of those games like a jay cutler with that eh, you know who cares attitude we're going nowhere please explain this to me why is the nfl trade deadline so quiet but the basketball and baseball trade deadlines are wildly entertaining and filled with movement transactions um, I, I think there's two reasons on that. I think one is the salary cap issues that are uh, associated sometimes with those moves and that that can be difficult for certain teams to deal with. But I think the bigger thing is that head coaches uh, really don't like to insert real contributors into their lineups halfway through the season. I think that's really what it boils down to. Like a system learning curve? Yeah, I, I think that's what people, I think that's the way people look at it. I think if you had around the NFL more young general managers, and there, there, there's there's an influx of younger guys, um, but guys who aren't necessarily uh, quote unquote football guys, uh, guys who uh, think outside the box a little bit, because that that's what you have in these front offices of baseball and basketball. Um, you know, obviously they're they're engrossed in the sport, but there's a different type of look that they have at the sport than if you threw a coach in that position. And the NFL general manager position, a lot of times, I think, trends more towards scout and coach. And coaches in particular, if you go back to the days of, um, you know, the dual role of the coach general manager, the Parcells types, the Shanahan's, those guys, they're not looking to upset the apple cart, you know, week eight of a season and bringing someone in that you might be able to fit into the lineup, you might not be able to. And they just say, ah, we'll just let it die and, uh, you know, we'll deal with it next year. 
my I trust my guys to run my system. My system is so innovative and has so many moving parts and it's so complex. I can't imagine a player coming in and picking it up in week eight. That's impossible. I'm not even going to bother trying to acquire someone at the trade deadline. Doesn't even make sense. My system is so complicated. I'm just going to stick with my guys because they spent all training camp with me and they're loyal and they know my system. Remember, too, a lot of these guys that you hear names rumored about, um, you know, being available at the trade deadline. A lot of times those players the next year are probably going to get cut and be completely free to sign. So teams might even look at that and say, hey, you know what, we can just get them next year for nothing. Um, so I think that plays a role in there as well. Whereas other, you know, in baseball and basketball, more so in baseball, you'll see those, you know, last year, the contract deals, uh, they know they're not going to re-sign a guy and then they'll, they'll trade him over. Um, but in the NFL, you, you don't really get those uh, those kind of players as often the guaranteed contract lends itself so much better to being traded. Oh yeah, absolutely. Jason Fitzpack. I did it again. Jason Fitzpack. I did it again. Jason Fitzpack. I did it again. Fitzgerald.